Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In this episode, you meet Yas Stanley, the Vice President of E-Commerce at Corel Brands. In her role, Yas is responsible for expanding the company's digital reach and driving profitable sales growth through the five brand websites for Corel, Pyrex, Corningware, Snapware, and Chicago Cutlery. Prior to her role with Corel Brands, Yah has had leadership roles, including Vice President of Strategy at Follette Corporation and Director Roles at Sears Holding Corporation and Macy's in Chicago, as well as a Program Manager at the Home Depot in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Yah holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a Bachelor of Science degrees in both Physics and Industrial Engineering from Spelman College and Georgia Institute of Technology, respectively. Yah lives in Bronzeville here in Chicago with her husband, Quincy, and her nine-year-old son, Jaden. I really enjoyed this conversation with Yah. I, I appreciated her transparency and her honesty about her journey, and so I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Yah and me. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're going to start... I looked up your title. I think you have a cool job. I love the products um, that you guys sell, but can you explain day-to-day like what your job is? So my current role, which I've been in since March of this year, uh, is vice president of e-commerce. And so it basically entails me running the online uh, business. So I'm responsible for everything that happens from product to marketing on that particular uh, channel. So we have retail stores, we have the online channel, and then we have a wholesale business where we sell to other retailers. But the e-commerce realm, that's my responsibility. So day-to-day, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say day-to-day, it's really just kind of thinking through the strategy, both short-term and long-term, and making sure it's still relevant in terms of really helping us reach our growth goals and then just making sure the team is motivated throughout their kind of day-to-day activities and just helping to manage the the stress level. We've got a big launch upcoming, so just keeping everybody motivated, positive, and moving forward while we work towards the strategy. Mm. And now, is this something that you always wanted to do? Um, I don't know if always. I think when I was growing up, I mean, there was aspirations of becoming a chef, becoming, uh, you know, an engineer, like I, my formal training in school is actually engineering and physics. But I think somewhere during my uh, college education, I wanted to dive into business and then as, and, and particularly retail. And then as the years uh, moved by, it was more so centered around e commerce just because of the retail landscape and how brick and mortar stores, such as just that downtrending. Um, effect and how everything's shifting to e-commerce, it kind of naturally uh, moves in that direction. Got it. And looking back now, in your first corporate job, like what was your first uh, like grown-up adult corporate job? Mm-hmm. And was it very like diverse in terms of like Black people, women, and things like mm-hmm. that? So my first job out of undergrad was at a company called Towers Parent, and it's actually changed its name since then, but it was an actuarial firm. So um, basically kind of doing company or retirement plan valuations and doing a lot of math and actually taking math exams for a living. So was not my dream job by far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as I think back, and I was so long ago, but as I think back to just the office environment, 
Um, there were a handful of blacks, I would say maybe, I just remember being in that office, maybe like three or so. Um, it was a smaller office in the Atlanta area, which is surprising that there were only three or so blacks, but, um, and that there were some women in leadership positions. So there was like the consultant, um, position or the top position. There actually were a few women at that top level. So, um, I think that was a good thing to see as I kind of started out my career and even though I was really um, green and just didn't really know anything about corporate America down to the dress code, um, <laughs> I, I was kind of ahead of my time in terms of just seeking out kind of touch points and actually going and having conversations with some of the women in leadership positions who were pretty accessible. They had offices kind of around the, the cubes, like all the doers kind of set in the middle. And then they had offices, executives had offices around the perimeter of the building. So I kind of made sure I introduced myself and had conversations here and there when I could. So, And so in that early, you talk about, you know, kind of being proactive in finding people to, to connect with in that first job. Um, did you have any official mentors um, during that time, like the early phases of your career? And if you did, how did you get them? Um, I think... I don't think I had, like, official mentors at that time. Um, I think, and there is someone I still keep in touch with kind of on that mentor level. So if I need, you know, um, but more infrequent now because I've developed additional mentors over time. But if I needed any type of career advice or even kind of that uh, professional reference, then uh, I met someone there who was ahead of me in terms of, tenure and experience level and also like the exams passed and so I think kind of it started out informal and just kind of seeking that informal advice here and there um but it definitely developed a better um approach over time and the more I progressed in seniority um at each of the companies the more that I made a conscious effort to um take kind of a, a mentor or even if it wasn't um, explicitly stated that way, it was, hey, you know, you're really someone that um, I think could, you know, help guide my career and give me great advice. Do you mind if we have touch bases, you know, every so often, maybe quarterly? And everyone was open to that. Um, and just from that approach, and I think also just um, having some of the more senior folks just observe how I work, how I work. I think I've, you know, kind of acquired additional uh, mentors or, or folks to help with guidance over the years that I didn't even solicit. And so those are people that I still keep in touch with. And again, have on my list of professional references. And for most of them, you, uh, you found them while you were actually like doing work. So they may have noticed right. like what you were and like, you know what, this woman has potential. Let me see if I can help guide her in some way. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. And I think too, like, especially after, um, business school, I was put in, you know, at, in my career, I was put in situations um, where it was some type of high-profile project or it was maybe on some um, senior leadership program committee or something where I had a high level of exposure to um, executives. So there was that interaction. And I, from that, just kind of developed a comfort level with interacting with uh, executives or, or senior level um, 
colleagues. So it was always natural just to have those conversations and to, you know, ask, could we have, you know, kind of um, regular communication? Um, and you mentioned, you know, going back to business school, I think a lot of people um, now are trying to decide, like, if the ROI is is because mm-hmm. it is a big financial investment. So for you, how did you decide to go back to business school? Sure. So I, I think just I spoke earlier about trying to make that pivot from um, more sciences and engineering to uh, more of a business um, role. And I think, you know, kind of early on when I was at Towers Parent, just knowing that that particular job, which I'm trying to remember how long was I there, maybe two or so years, um, that wasn't the role for me. So just really thinking as I worked in those roles, like, what else do I want to do? So I actually took my next job um, at the Home Depot in Atlanta in their corporate office in logistics. And I went into there knowing that I wanted to go back to business school. So I knew I was only going to be at Home Depot for a year. And that role got me a little bit closer to um, kind of more of the business side. It was in a retail company and you know, I was sure that I wanted to do something in retail. Um, but it was at that time I said, all right, I want to go back to business school, explore, you know, um, what's out there with marketing. And I knew there were, you know, different retail classes and those sort of things that I could take in business school. And then from there I would kind of discover myself and discover what my passions were. So it was really, um, that decision was just knowing that I wanted to make a pivot and I think an MBA or kind of just taking that um, kind of not not a break because business school is hard, but just taking that time. And it's really um, kind of going back to school is kind of a time where you can gather yourself, learn additional things and just kind of figure out what your next um, path uh, is in your career. But I, in terms of the ROI, um, that's a tough one. I definitely think it's helped me, you know, by far, and it goes without saying, just accelerate my career. So from that standpoint, highly worth it. Um, I had uh, a couple good um, acceptances, one at Kellogg uh, here in Chicago where I live now, and then one at Emory um, at Gozueta's Business School where I had a full ride, a full scholarship there, and then I got into Harvard Business School with of, of course, just kind of a few grants and then all the rest student loans. So that was like one of the hardest decisions trying to figure out, okay, do I go with, you know, where it makes sense? I'm already here. It's, you know, Emory's a great school. I don't have to pay for anything. Or, you know, really when you go to business school, in my mind, just getting that brand stamp and that um, additional piece that can help propel your career. So it's the, the top institution like Harvard like that was really where I, I said that makes the most sense for me. So definitely the hefty price tag, which, um, you know, I think will still continue to <laughs> pay for itself. So I haven't quite hit that full ROI yet, but close. Um, but I, I think it was just the right decision in terms of the brand stamp and just being able to pivot uh, my career and just having that um, on my resume where people can say, okay, she has Spelman, Georgia Tech, Harvard, like, you know, she is, you know, there is this, um, she's teachable, she's got great skills, she's got great experience, kind of thing, like just having all the right right stamps, I think is, is important as you try to navigate your career. Got it. And you've worked for some pretty uh, impressive companies, and at a certain point at each of those companies, you've decided that it was time to move on to a mm-hmm. new opportunity. So for you, how do you know when it's time to move on from a role? Sure, and I, and I look back over my 
career, I was like, wow, I really did like a lot of three-year stints. <laughs> you start to look and say, man, I, I hope that doesn't like signal anything. But especially as, you know, definitely as I get uh, more senior in my career, I think that kind of matters a little bit less. So um, that's helped. But I think in each company, it's, it's doing something. It's trying to find the right role. It's trying to think top of mind as always, okay, moving on to the next best opportunity within the company. Okay, what's the next best project that I can get on? Am I learning kind of thing? Is it still fun to me? Um, how am I doing navigating the political waters, which is just huge. And that, you know, that's the biggest thing that, um, you know, has kind of impacted my career, just navigating political waters and just my success or failure in doing that at each um, step of the way. So I, I think in terms of knowing when it's time to, do something else is okay. Do I feel like I'm kind of just at a standstill? Um, do I feel like I'm enjoying it or not really enjoying it anymore? And do I feel like just in terms of the company culture, is this the right place for me? Because, you know, you think about just the number of hours you spend in a place. And, you know, if you start to feel like, Oh, I'm not particularly happy anymore at this place. then I think that's those, those are things when you feel like you're not really growing or there's not, really a place where you see yourself, you know, moving on. And then when you're not happy, I think that's when it's time to move on. And alternatively, like I've also had experiences where, um, you know, things were going well, there was opportunity there, but just something better (laughs) came along. And I think Mm. that's, you know, a, a good time too, where you have to evaluate your career trajectory at both places. And it's really, again, it's all about, moving forward, moving up, and then kind of growing in your experience or knowledge bank that you build at each company. So just evaluating where you're going to have the opportunity to do that. Got it. Um, So you touched briefly on culture, I think, twice now at this point. So let's talk about corporate culture because I think that's that's what people get – I thought that's the most challenging aspect of corporate America. And so the first part of this question is right now you hear a lot um, about – being your authentic self at work and be, bringing your whole self to work. And we all know that like that your authentic self is um, more or less accepted based on who you are. Right. And so for you, um, how, how have you brought your whole authentic self to work? Um, and do you think that corporate is becoming more accepting of like the different kinds of, of authentic selves? Um, I think to the, the first part, I don't think I've ever really been at a place where I've brought 100% of yeah to the workplace. And maybe there are different pockets of that um, work experience at that company where more of myself comes out. It just depends on, again, finding uh, people within the company that you connect with, that you can have conversations with, um, and I think nine times out of 10, like as an African-American, like you find that you're most comfortable obviously with other (laughs) African-Americans, but I think just in terms of how you position yourself in meetings or just around the office, you know, just your appearance, appearance, the way you communicate all those things, especially in companies where you, there's very few representation of African-Americans and you are kind of as bad as it is representing the race so to speak and you feel that you almost can't bring uh of your full authentic self to the the workplace because of just the perceptions and 
you know, what happens in society and in our communities and in the world in general, especially in this kind of um, social and political climate, there are perceptions out there. So folks that are not part of the African-American community have certain perceptions of African-Americans, certain stereotypes that they have in their head. So, you know, it's you have to make a conscious effort and maybe you don't. Maybe it is subconscious where you want to put forward the best, um, you know, what's expected, right? So not even saying that your authentic self is not your best self, but it's almost, okay, let me put out, um, you know, a certain, let me try to dispel stereotypes or, um, you know, certain myths or perceptions out there. Let me, you know, kind of... um, change their mind with the way I present myself. Those things are just really top of mind. And I, I think it's um, it's just hard to really expose your full self because you, you just want to keep, I, for me, I like to keep personal, personal work. I like to keep that, all the different buckets. And so that's one instance where you can't bring your full self, where it's you have to bring your work self and your work self, in mm-hmm. my opinion, is just different. What was the second part of your question? Do you think corporates being more accepting uh, of the different kinds of authentic selves? Yeah, I, I've only been really in the retail industry, and and I, I think it, you know maybe it's different in different industries, but I'd say there's still I don't think we've made a lot of progress in just company culture in general, and just companies accepting. Um, you know, authentic representations of all different walks of life. I think there's a lot of lip service to it and there's, you know, certain, you know, like every company has their culture that they're trying to build and what they say they want it to be. But I think there's still still certain unsaid um, consequences or um, glass ceilings or just ways that people may treat you without you even knowing it based on how you present yourself, which can be, you know, a cultural um, part of you or just part of who you are. So I think I I just don't know if over the years, two decades um, that or maybe a little less than that, that I've been in the workplace, that things have changed that much in terms of what's just, how people perceive you and what's acceptable and not acceptable in the workplace. I do think there's definitely more women um, in the workplace and in leadership positions. So I've seen that change, but I'd say in terms of minorities from a um, ethnic and racial standpoint, I don't think I've seen that change Mm. too much, especially in senior leadership positions. I find myself only vice president, only black vice president at a company, two different uh, companies. And right now I think there's two of us Mm. or the only black person in a room or the only black person at a conference Um, or the only, yeah. So the only black person like, you know, making a presentation. So um, I I think the visuals, I I just don't feel the optics have changed that much, which, you know, just kind of maintains that pressure to, again, um, put your best foot forward and have, um, and just kind of represent your race well. In any <laughs> no, no pressure at all. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you talk briefly about the stereotypes, right? We know that, you know, the angry black woman and trying to mm-hmm. be like not too aggressive, but being firm enough so people take you seriously. And then all yep. these other things, like how do you, well, one, do you consciously try to not come across as the angry black woman in your dealings? Um, and, you know, how have you kind of adjusted making the stereotypes like not hold you back from doing the things that you feel like you need to do with your career? Right. Um, that the angry black woman, it, it's funny cause you know, I've definitely, you know, seen kind of that typical, I've actually as a black woman seen, um, and observed another black woman kind of living into or, or kind of acting out that stereotype where it's like, wow, like I really, you know, and, and sometimes I may pull somebody aside, Hey, you know, this is how you're coming across where it can be a stereotype, but it also can be like something where it's not just kind of this phantom thing where you can actually see, well, you know, you are coming across like you have an attitude or, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z on the flip side of that though. Um, then you have to start thinking about, well, if this was, you know, a white male with a similar disposition and a similar, manner of doing things, whether aggressive or not, like, would they be perceived a certain way? And you know the answer is no. So then that kind of gives you pause to say, well, you know, why, um, you know, just that equity in terms of perception and treatment. But we know, you know, again, corporate America is kind of a microcosm of society. (laughs) So we we know that there are those, those double standards there. But for me personally, I've never, it's not necessarily trying to, fight off that um, perception of angry black woman is more um, confident. So like anytime like a black woman has confidence in corporate America or, you know, takes on a leadership role or wants to push something through or is leading something, I think that um, just inherently has, it it challenges uh, other people, uh, especially non-black people. And there is, whether subconscious on their part, this kind of takeaway from it as, oh, well, she's leading this, or, oh, well, she's speaking up in this meeting, or, oh, she's trying to push something through, um, then they do have a certain perception of you, which can put you into the aggressive realm, which for a black woman is not uh, kind of the place that you want to, to sit. So it's, it's less about, like, tone or... For me, less about tone or um, just, you know, attitude or that sort of thing. It's more so about if you're actively trying to make something happen or if you're kind of speaking out or leading something, then there are others feel threatened. Mm. And, and that, that's the piece that I've had to learn to kind of maneuver around um, throughout my, my career. And so I've gotten a lot better. I always joke with people that, you know, corporate America, it really is like a game of thrones. So you have to (laughs) figure out who are the right folks to build alliances with, who are the people that you need to understand where their political ties lie and maybe steer clear. Um, You know, sometimes you can, you know, lose that game of thrones if you pick the right alliance, the wrong alliances or, um, you know, you're kind of in the wrong camp. So, it really is like at any company, even if a company says that it's not a political environment, it's always political. Um, mm. It's always less of a meritocracy in corporate America. It's usually about 
kind of who you know it's always about if somebody likes you or not so being likable um building the right alliances i think those are knowing when to um speak up and try to push for something that you know is right but knowing also when to make concessions those are the things that i think that helps kind of shape um how others perceive you and whether they put you in some angry black woman bucket or too aggressive bucket which again unfairly um would it would not happen uh to a male person of another race Mm. um and then last culture question so Mm -hmm. it seems and this could just be my own bias that there's like two acceptable black female corporate hairstyles right it's either like the short pixie or (laughs) or the blowout um have you have you seen that change? I think there are a few, a couple of, you know, visible female black executives who are like, listen, this is my natural hair. This is what I'm doing. Right. But like in terms of hair, like what are your thoughts on like the appropriate corporate black hairstyle? Um, I think you're right about those two hairstyles being um, kind of the typical standard hairstyles. And again, it goes back to how do I come across as, you know, less threatening and you know, as sad as it is, less ethnic in corporate America um, can, you know, raise fewer eyebrows or be less threatening. So I think, you know, black women always have to, you know, have that internal battle with, you know, being myself or, you know, just trying to kind of blend in and not (laughs) cause, you know, a certain type of attention. I, I do think from a hair standpoint, though, that there is, more acceptance of natural styles uh, in corporate America, I would say, especially in retail. I'm still mindful of, okay, if I want to get a color change or something, like I, as a black woman, just kind of keeping the drastic hair changes to a minimum because you just don't feel like dealing with, you know, the questions or the, just that conversation you just don't want it to be about your hair or outward appearance where I think uh women of other races like you know doing a cut or a color or something like that just doesn't raise as many eyebrows for some reason Mm. yeah man because I know it's something that we talk about all the time I'm in one of my earlier interviews I was considering getting braids and I had to ask Mm -hmm. I was like are braids okay and they're like yes girl you can get braids just make sure that they're neat and don't do too much right like Right, right. And is it a color braid or is it, are they the thicker braids or little ones? Is it something you can put in a ponytail? But you know, if you do braids, you're going to get questions or, you know, stares or whatever, because it's different and it's not something that they're accustomed to seeing. So, yeah. Uh, I've gotten braids since I've worked in corporate America. I've not gotten braids. Oh, wow. Man, it, that's crazy um, because they're so convenient, especially if you like to work out in the summertime. Right, like, right. I can't blow out my hair. You know, that's another another conversation yeah, for another day. So can you think about holistically over your career um, a time and like a concrete example of a time where you maybe felt stuck and what you did to uh, to get unstuck? Because I know a lot of the conversations that we've been having um, with, you know, my peers in the the Facebook group is that a lot of times people are like, I just feel stuck. And like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what my first step should be. So like a concrete time where you felt stuck somewhere or stuck in a particular project or role and like what you did to get unstuck. 
Yeah, so for me, that's a tough one just because, um, like, I've always gone to different companies with a purpose or it was to, like, work on a specific project or it was part of some initiative. So I've always kind of had that momentum where I felt like I was kind of moving forward. But I think where I've hit, like, kind of a low point is just when I, you know, come to the realization like especially when you're not happy in a particular role and it's wow like what I don't know from a career standpoint like what I want to do or what would make me happy at work is there such a job that I would love to do and just so I think that's the the stuck that um, I've experienced it's not necessarily like I can't like I haven't been able to move forward because when that happens where I feel like oh, there's not that upward progression opportunity, then that's when I start. Like you asked the earlier question around, like, when do you know it's time to look? Then that's when I would start, um, you know, looking for a different opportunity. But I think my stuff has just been, like, what is my passion? Like, what is, mm. you know, something that I can do? And just, and you, it's so easy to get caught up on social media and LinkedIn and everywhere just kind of looking at other people's journeys and other people's careers and things look great outside looking in and you just feel like, wow, like this person looks really happy in their career. This seems like they have the dream job kind of thing. And then it's easy to compare and kind of look at your career and say, wow, like how did I end here? Like, I don't know if I'm like, is this my passion? Is this something I really want to do? And that's when you can start to feel stuck when you start to do that comparison or when you feel like you've kind of gone all through this journey and through this path and like 15 years later, are you at this place where does that feel stuck? Like you're at a dead end. You can't really pivot because you know, you're almost 40 (laughs) and senior in your career. So like those are the times where I've had to like take a step back and just think about, um, just the journey or kind of think 10 years out, like where do I, you know, that classic question, where do you see yourself in, in, in 10 years and then start to think about, okay, what's, I have a really strategic mind in terms of, okay, what's my strategy? Like, how do I get there? If this is something that I don't see for the long term, like what can I do to kind of pivot? How can I pull in my mentors and really tap into my resources that I've built of, you know, just executives who are in, you know, my network to figure out what my next step is. Mm. And um, you talk brief, like about your network and, you know, when you start looking, how have you been intentional about cultivating your network? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think, just some of the organizations that I'm a part of, I think, um, inherently bring that network. So being a member of Delta Sigma Theta, already incorporated, um, now being a newly uh, initiated member of Jack and Jill here in Chicago, um, just being a part of like Spelman alum uh, in the Harvard network, I think those bring a network that, you know, it's you can tap it, it's expected that you can tap into those networks to, kind of seek out, you know, advice or I think the the hardest kind of help to get is like career help or like job help. Like even people that are, you know, kind of high in their careers, like when you ask someone for, hey, can you help me find a job or that those kind of questions, those are the hardest for people to kind of help you with. But um, I think just asking advice or just helping to think about, um, you know, certain things to make sure you're just to have a sounding board to make sure you're thinking about things correctly. I think all of those networks have helped with that, or even just to find out, Hey, you're in this particular role or you're at this company or in this industry. How is that? Like, tell me, give me the real of how that is for you. Like, do you like it? And getting that kind of insight before you even try to attempt to kind of, um, 
step into those uh, environments, I think is helpful. And then just, again, finding those people I've made, uh, like ever since my first or second job, made a conscious effort to find people um, that, you know, can help me along the way within my career at that particular company, and that can just be a resource afterwards. I still have a mentor um, from Sears Holdings, which was my first job out of business school, and he's been awesome. Just a professional reference, a sounding board. He'll always give it, hey, yeah, you're you're not, like, you know, you're not thinking about this the right way, or just to really put up a mirror and just help me um, kind of focus on what it is I need to do or what the next step is, so... And then I even at my last job at Follett, um, prior to my current job, they actually um, positioned me with a professional um, career coach. And mm. so that was a new initiative they had at the company where they took what they call kind of rising um, leaders and people that they saw with potential. And it was the first year of the program where it was, um, I think I was like the fourth person um, that they partnered with the career coach. So it was like a specific set duration and there were monthly meetings and um just kind of giving guidance and that sort of thing and so I still have that person as a um, resource as well Mm. um so I, I I don't think I think maybe this was like at a panel that I listened to but they said you know expectations change and people change when you go from being one of many to one of one right where it's like for you you're overseeing the e-com right so the buck stops uh, to a certain extent with you, like the decisions that you make now impact um, a lot of different people and the company mm-hmm. a lot more so than when you were maybe like a coordinator or a manager. And mm-hmm. that can be scary for some people, right? Because you don't want to make uh, mistakes on right. a huge scale. Right. So can you think back to like an example of maybe when you made a mistake, um, but that seemed terrible at the time, but looking back now, it kind of helped you be able to do something better or look at a situation in a more kind of seasoned way yeah sure um in terms of mistakes I would say just the ones that I've made and and learned from just all have to do with just navigating um the corporate environment or again like I mentioned just knowing when to push or when to make a concession like so it's like my mistakes have come early in my career where you know pushing hard on something that you know I know deep down is right and I don't understand why I you know, folks aren't getting behind this thing that can, you know, make us money or it's something that inherently is right for the company to do. Why aren't they getting behind it and just pushing and pushing and pushing? Um, And for sure a mistake because then, you know, you kind of turn people off. You, you know, do kind of build a reputation of, oh, this person doesn't know how to work well with others. So that... um, those mis- mistakes early on in my career are ones that I've definitely said, okay, well, that didn't work or that put me in this particular position or that, you know, kind of gave this perception about me. How can I learn from that? And, you know, just kind of take that to figure out how to, you know, kind of work with people or how to take people as partners moving uh, forward. And, Again, just knowing when, okay, well, I'm not going to get this round. It's okay. Like, even though this is something I really believe in, um, you know, I'm going to let this one sit for a while because maybe the company's not ready. Maybe, you know, whatever the reason is, it's not worth the polit- something I call that political capital. Mm. It's not worth wasting that on on pushing something that, you know, it's just not going to happen. So 
that political capital, I had just that lesson I've, I've learned, and it's been a really important one in terms of just how to protect your professional brand, mm. how to, you know, knowing when to use a little pol- political capital, when not to, knowing when to take partners, um, knowing just, you know, that, that skill of influencing is so huge um, and just something that you don't just, so maybe there's some people that are, are born with that or just develop that early on and they have that when they first start their career. But that skill of knowing how to influence people without having direct authority over them, that's a really hard skill and it, it takes time and a conscious effort um, to, to put into that. And, and that's the type of intangible that I think really helps kind of move your career along, taking a partner, knowing when to make concessions, and then really just having that skill of influencing people so that they do rally behind your ideas or your way of thinking or your approach and maybe feel like they have something invested in it too and they want to help really push it forward uh, with you. So so can you think of a project or a specific project that you push too hard on? Um, yeah, I would say just... Um, I think early in my career at, at Sears where, um, you know, there was just constant conflict. So I was in the, the footwear division, but it was for online. Um, and then there was an online division. So there was already this inherent kind of conflict because we both were kind of pushing for things or we had the same goal to make money online, but I was coming from a merchandising lens where I wanted to see things happen differently on the website and they were coming from a pure website mm. lens. And so, you know, just trying to ram my ideas again, where I, which I thought were the right thing to do. I may have had data, um, but they were kind of protecting their turf, so to speak, as well. And they felt like they should have authority over it and not taking uh, a partner in some of those things where it's, you know, sending out an email, hey, we need to do this, or going over and having meetings and being, you know, too pushy in a meeting, not really building those offline alliances. So knowing you're going into a meeting, just going in and trying to ram it down uh, their throats versus just, um, you know, having those side offline conversations. Hey, why why don't you guys want to get this done? Or what are some of your thoughts? Or what are things that you guys are trying to get done? How can we, those, those back channel conversations, mm. like, those are the things that I was not skilled in. And I, I think, in terms of trying to push against that group and them pushing back. Um, I just, it just kind of put me behind the eight ball in terms of um, just having, building a reputation of, of working well with, with folks. So that's a skill I've really had to just quickly work hard to, to, um, to build in terms of, you know, how do you make other people feel like they're invested? How do you make them feel like they have a stake in what, it is you're doing or how do you, you know, um, it's kind of take partners. Mm. So in addition to like figuring out how to get buy-in from people that you don't manage, what mm-hmm. are, you know, two or so other skills that you've had to develop over the course of your career that now allow you to be successful in your current job? Um, so yeah, so that political, um, that political savviness, like that's something um, just the, having a high comfort level of just speaking on the spot, I think, is another skill that's just really key. Um, just, and I think part of that comes from knowing your stuff. Mm. <laughs> um, so just being comfortable with the material, like getting into a role or a company and just learning, soaking up 
as much as possible, as quickly as possible, so that you can be somewhat of an authority on the topic. And so in that case, if you do have to speak off the cuff or if you do have to pull together a presentation to, to, um, to give that you are you come across as um, a leader, you do come across having that, that comfort level. So just being able to speak off the cuff and being able to, um, to make, uh, you know, formal presentations in front of um, a room full of people, that communication style. So I think business school definitely helped with that because at Harvard it was a case method. So you could be cold called on the spot or, you know, you had, you read through your case and, um, Sorry, uh, you read your case and then you could be called on at any time or you could something, some point could compel you and you just want to raise your hand and speak out. It's being comfortable with that. And I've had to really practice that over the course of my career. Um, and so I think that's a great skill. Um, I think just knowing, too, that, you know, career, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm. So back to trying to ram things through, it's just have patience, like just having a level of patience, I think, comes with maturity, like business maturity. Um, again, knowing when to take those concessions and knowing I don't have to get everything done in this first year. Like, you want to win, and especially for type A personalities and super competitive personalities like myself, you want to win and get it all done, but it's a marathon. Mm -hmm. Like, pace yourself, pace those wins, get small wins, <laughs> and then you can go for those those larger wins. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you see the, the right opportunity. Mm. Um, outside of your MBA, which I mean, listening to you, it's paid off, right? It's, it, it's, uh, it was definitely a worthwhile investment, but outside mm -hmm. of your MBA, what do you think the best investment you've made in yourself or your career has been? Um, I think just, it's a tough one. I think just being open to just learning, I think. Mm -hmm. um, outside of the MBA, like where that was a big conscious decision to do something to benefit my career. Other than that, it's just been uh, in the mentor, uh, mentorship. I think the other thing is just being open to, to learning and absorbing more, not just saying, okay, I've gone to school, I've learned what I need to learn and I'm done. I will say that I'm super busy, right, uh, like just in my career, but I have like these 30 books on my nightstand <laughs> that are stacked up that I need to re read all different types of, some I've read, some I want to read again, um, but just being open, like going to conferences and seminars and just being open to absorbing um, new information, especially in the e-commerce world, um, the industry I'm in, retail, things are ever-changing, so just learning, um, mm. being open to learning is huge. Mm. Being a lifelong learner. Exactly. <laughs> um, so excluding your phone and your laptop, what's the one thing that you have to have to be productive in your work day? Um, I don't know if it's a tool, but I just think a to-do list mm. is something that I just have always kind of used and needed. Um, sometimes it's a bit more disorganized than others where I'm writing on post-it notes <laughs> and, you know, I have like five stickies of things I need to do. Um, or I'll write in, like right now I have a notebook where each day it's just crossing things off or, 
um, you know, adding things on. I just like that organization and being able to see like accomplishment and things that I'm getting done. So I think a to-do list is like that tool that I use daily in every part of my life. Mm. Um, with the growing attention that's being paid to entrepreneurship, um, and especially as it pertains to black women, um, what has kept you in corporate? Like what, why haven't you made the jump? Sure. And I actually, um, my husband and I, we started a business thinking like, I don't know, 2012, where it was an online retail business. Um, so we did dabble in entrepreneurship for a bit, but we didn't dive 100% in. We both had full-time jobs still, so <laughs> we didn't take that um, 100% leap. But I would say just in terms of not, you know, really looking at that as a an option right now, I would say, one, it's just what is it that, what idea is there, some good idea or something that I'm, I feel strongly about to just dive in and, and take that leap. And I don't think I've found that yet. Um, I always see different like ideas or things. And I'm like, Oh, how did we not think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think, and, and maybe we're overthinking and we've come up with my husband, I will brainstorm on just thousands of ideas that we can, what about this? Cause we really wanted to pursue entrepreneurship, especially, you know, some years ago. So it was always constantly thinking about ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's kind of been a barrier, just not having something tangible that we felt strongly about or felt like we could build a business off of. Mm-hmm. And then I would just say the money. <laughs> Frankly, I mean, entrepreneurship comes with that level of risk of not, you know, um, equaling your um, current salary in, in the workforce. And so I think just building a lifestyle for a certain comfort level financially, it's hard to replicate, uh, especially if you don't have some ideas that you can immediately get off the ground. So mm. I think those are the two big things. But still, you know, it's still on our minds and still something that is out there. Mm. And so you just mentioned your husband, and I know that you have a, a child. Um, mm-hmm. And so for you, what does work-life balance look like if you – even prioritize or if you think about work-life balance like what does that look like for you that's a a challenge and my husband and I we just had a a debate we have a friend in town um, for a wedding and so we just had a debate and they're one of our couple friends about just that topic of work-life balance and how do you especially you know having a child that's in all types of extracurricular activities there's a schooling and homework and then as a you know, a parent, you're trying to accomplish things in your career. You're trying to have things, you know, for yourself personally, and then still have um, time to invest in the family and to, you know, as a parent. So I don't think, I don't know if work-life balance exists as a whole. I think it can mean different things for different people, but I think it's just in some points in time like your career is gonna be like family's always number one god and family but your career is going to um you know soak up time you, that's going to be accepted where your career at that particular time so like right now we're going to a website relaunch and it's happening in the next month and a half so like bringing work home that's just you know kind of the norm right now um but then there are other times where, okay, like, so my son is, he comp- competes in AAU track and field, and 
you know, one of the top in the country and I helped coach him. So it's like during the summer when we're ramping up to the AAU Junior Olympics, that is what is the big focus. And that's what, you know, is going to take the time. And so I think work-life balance is just being able to, it's accepting the fact that some things are going to soak up more time than others at different points in time, but being able to do those, uh, you know, pull those levers and shift appropriately and just, I think, keep the communication open with all involved so that you kind of are meeting expectations. Cause that's really like when you don't have the right work-life balance and you're not communicating, that's when, you know, those problems can kind of start to, to trickle through in your personal life. And did you give much thought to like how having a child and or being married would impact your career at all? I don't think I consciously thought about it for the, uh, for our, our son. Um, you know, it was, I, I know I want to have a successful career I know I want to climb the ladder and one day own something or be the head of some company and I know I want to have children so it mm. just, I'm going to do both and we're going to figure it out but I think as you get older and we you know we just have one but we've always I don't think we ever set out to say we just want one child um, but I think you know once you have the first one and then things get busier um, just then you start getting super planful like when's a good time and then when you look up and it's like oh wow, we're 40 and, you know, like that we missed the boat. So I think we still want, um, you know, uh, more children, but, you know, you just trying to figure out now at this point, is, is there time still? So I think the first one is just kind of, we went in, this is what we want to do. This is what's supposed to happen. But somehow, you know, this kind of got really planful as we started to both move up in our careers. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that's, kind of, you know, that's kind of what, what's happened there. So, mm. um, and then the last question before the lightning round. Um, so looking at the job that you have now, like what is the one thing that kind of brings you the most joy or satisfaction in the work that you do? Um, I think just being creative. I always talk about, um, even with my team, just that blend of arts and sciences, right? So I've always had to have those, uh, two mindsets and, just growing up in my career. So I played the violin for like 20 years. So having that artistic side, but then, you know, loving science and being an engineer by training. So having to balance both uh, left and right sides of the, the brain. So I think in my role now, I get a chance to think about the creative, the look and feel of the site, like, you know, how to, um, you know, make these particular products we sell appealing to the customer. And um, then also looking at data and, being able to analyze. So it's that gut feeling. It's the look and feel, but then is there data to support it? So I think what I love about this job is I get to balance both of those things. Mm. Um, so that's, that's awesome. I think also just having instantaneous results. So again, I'm super competitive. And so in the online retail world, you get results, your sales results every day. So we get to see the decisions, the results of the decisions that we made and are those working or not. So just, uh, being able to win daily <laughs> is is awesome. Mm. Also, the flip side of that, if you're not winning, then <laughs> that definitely is, is a downer. So, but I think those instantaneous results. And then I just, you know, just being a, a, a leader and being able to help guide careers and set a good example and, you know, make my team proud. And so just, you know, my manager commented, because uh, we were having a particularly tough everything was busy for everybody and people were stressed out and so I just kind of gathered the team and just 
kind of really had them reset and just send them a nice note about our results. And then my manager come to me and you're such a great leader, which really made me feel good because, you know, um, just going through your career, it's like, when do you make that transition? What is the, the, the switch flip from being a doer to then a manager to then a leader? Right. Mm. So just to hear that, um, oh, you really are a good leader. Like people look up to you. People want to really work for you. People, you know, kind of rally behind you is, is awesome. So mm. those are the three things. Got it. And then, so now we're going to do the lightning round. Don't overthink these questions. Just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, sure. so the first question is what's the one piece of career advice that you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? Um, I think again, just knowing like, how political corporate America is and just knowing when to push and not push. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that when it comes to mind. Mm. What's the one book that has had the biggest impact on your career or that you could read over and over again? I would say the first 90 days, um, that book, uh, but the first 90 days talks about just what to think about and what to do. Um, when you first start a new role or first start with a new company, that book is awesome. It just tells you about some of the pitfalls, what to look out for, like who to take partners with initially. It kind of goes through examples of, um, you know, some common pitfalls. So it just really opens your eyes and just just helps you think about, like, how should I first start this? It's how you start something is everything in corporate America. So I think if I had that book starting out in my career, then, uh, you know, that would be be able to be that much more a hit, but I think that's a book that's a go-to that you can just keep reading and just keep seeing new things within it. Um, and then the last question, we all know that you know most of the times when there are decisions being made about your career, you are not in the room. And so what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? Um, I think I, I would want them to um, feel like that I am a good leader like that. Um, I think that's important for me to kind of build that perception and have people feel that way about me. And also that I'm a, a hard worker. I think, again, it goes back to, you know, just perception and stereotypes and things. So I work really hard inherently as I think uh, most people do and just making sure that people are seeing, seeing that and that they value just the work I put in and just the commitment I have to um, my role into the company. Mm. I feel like that's such a great note to end the podcast on. Um, thank you again so much for your time today. Um, I wrote down, I was taking notes <laughs> as you were talking. Yeah. like, yeah, I should. Oh, why not think of that? This sounds great. But so thank you so much for, for joining me today. Well, thank you. You're an awesome uh, moderator and interviewer. Uh, I enjoy the conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, I told you that y'all was amazing. And you all know that I like to end each episode with my top three takeaways. So here we go. One, knowing when to speak up and when to make concessions are the kinds of things that help shape how others view you. Two, knowing how to influence people when you don't have any direct authority over them is really hard and it's a skill that takes time and conscious effort. And then three, for all of my Game of Thrones fans, sometimes you can lose the Game of Thrones if you pick the wrong alliances. Um, as always, if you want to keep the conversation going, join us in our Facebook group at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.